somebody got me back to my home, to the home that we had shared, to the home that no longer felt like home because he wasn't there, to the home that didn't feel like home because I had been living in the hospital. Someone helped me undress and shower and stayed in there. So when I fell down crying, they could sit down in the water and hold me. Hey there, and welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter, a weekly podcast on the art and craft of the personal narrative story. Each week, my partner Kurt and I will tackle one question and answer it as best we can to help you craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories, personal stories, grit stories. This week, our feature storyteller is Laura Packer. Laura lives up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She's also the author of From Audience to Zeal, the ABCs of Finding, Crafting, and Telling a Great Story. And she's got a great story to share with us today. A 10-minute story. And when she's done, Kurt and I will tackle this week's question, when's the right time to tell a tough story? Laura's got something to say about that as well. So stick around to the end. Thanks so much for listening. Let's dive in. I have never been one of those people who cries in airports. You know those scenes at the beginning and end, I think, of um, love, actually, when everyone is bawling in the airport as they say goodbye or bawling as they say hello. You know, I watch it and I understand the emotions behind it, but that's just not me. But there I was. I was crying in the airport. And this was not just a little sniff. This was a big, ugly, face red, tears screaming, snot running, breath choking kind of cry. Let me tell you what led up to that. Two weeks earlier, I was in the hospital where I had basically been living for many weeks because 69 days before that two weeks notice, my husband had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And 69 days after that diagnosis, two weeks before I was crying in the airport, he died. And when he died, this sound came ripping out of me. And again, I'm not a person of great stereotypes or I try not to be, but I found myself believing in banshees because for just a moment I was one, wailing out as I felt the connection that had always been there from when we first met gone for the first time in almost 20 years. And after he died, somebody got me back to my home, to the home that we had shared to the home that no longer felt like home because he wasn't there, to the home that didn't feel like home because I had been living in the hospital. Someone helped me undress and shower and stayed in there. So when I fell down crying, they could sit down in the water and hold me. And there was somebody there for days. I'd be lying if I said to you that I remembered much of it. I remember some of the incidental kindness. I remember people laughing in my house and wondering how they could. And I remember a lot of things that just weren't. 
because mostly what I was trying to do was understand how I could live around this vast emptiness. About a week after he died, everyone left. And I was so relieved to have the house to myself for all that it was big and empty and echoing because it meant that I could cry whenever I wanted to and no one would be there to hand me a tissue. No one would be there to witness. I didn't want witnesses. I wanted it to be just me. And sometime in the beginning of the week after everyone had left, my friend Eileen called. Now, Eileen and I have been friends for years. She is one of the people who helped me through some of the difficult times though not this one. And I had certainly helped her through some of her difficult times. She called me up and all she said was, hi, hon. And I started wailing again. But unlike almost everybody else, she just sat there and waited with me, occasionally made little "Mm," noises so I knew that she was there. And she just listened while while I cried. And when I finally cried myself out, she said, Grief is a bitch, isn't she? Grief will bust your door down and break up the furniture and shake you and kick you and hurt you until you cannot stand anymore. And then she leaves and you don't know when she's going to come back, but you know she's going to come back. Sometimes she brings pie. Now, I had no idea what Eileen was talking about. I thought she was nuts. And she was quiet for a moment and said, do you want me to come out? She lived on the East Coast. I lived in the center of the country. I was surprised to hear myself say yes. So a week later, there I was in the airport, and I waited for her by the gate, and I did something that I thought was a smile when I saw her, but probably didn't look like a smile to anyone else. We walked over to the luggage carousel and didn't say much to each other, but it was so comforting to have her standing near me, to feel the warmth of her body as she leaned against me just a little bit, kind of the way a dog leans against you when you are so sad and you know that the dog understands, even if it doesn't have the words. The luggage started coming down, that loud klaxon sounding to let us know it was coming, and the carousel started chugging itself to life, going thump, thump, thump. You know that sound as it would go around, even if it's a sound you haven't heard in the last six months or so, as the carousel goes around and as it turns the corner going thump, 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 and the luggage comes sliding down, and we stood there waiting for her bag. We talked about nothing, about her flight about nothing of consequence. And then I saw this guy. So for those of you who are in the military, have served in the military, love someone who's in the military, please listen to what follows with love and compassion and know that it is not my intent to mock in any way. It was just who I was in that moment. There was this guy dressed in his fatigues, tall and young, and I'm sure fit with a very stern expression on his face from top to toe in camouflage. His boots matched his pants, which matched his jacket, which matched his hat. And we knew which luggage was his when it came down because it was, of course, the camouflage duffel bag. And I found myself thinking how funny it was that he was color coordinated even with his luggage. And I laughed not loud, just a little chuckle the way you do when you think something that amuses you. I looked at Eileen and she looked at me with her eyes bright with tears and a smile on her face. I knew she had seen him too. And all of a sudden I realized that 
I had laughed. And I slapped my hand on my mouth because how could I laugh when the man I love was dead? And I burst into tears. Eileen dropped her luggage. She wrapped her arms around me and it was not a pretty cry. And you know how it is when you cry in public spaces. It's like ripples expand around you, pushing all the people away. And soon we had our own little corner of the airport to ourselves. When finally I was done crying for the moment and had made her shoulder was sodden with tears and with snot, we drove back to the house. I don't remember much about that visit. I remember Eileen sitting with me and not saying very much, but I remember very little. I know we did some stuff, but that's the way it was. I remember so little of those early days. Grief is all-encompassing. It becomes everything. The vastness of the emptiness is the whole world, and all you're doing is orbiting that emptiness because there's nothing else to do. So I don't remember much. I remember some people trying to tell me how to grieve. Oh, you'll be fine in a year, they said. And I remember smiling, something that might have been a smile and nodding and really thinking, fuck you. And I remember some people not telling me how to grieve, but just sitting with me or telling me that they were sorry and they didn't know what it was. And I remember being so grateful that they didn't know. I didn't want them to know. No one should know. I remember learning how to ration crying so I could stop before I would throw up and I could drink some water, enough water that I would get rehydrated and cry again. I even wrote out a little timetable of myself. At one point, my grief counselor suggested that I schedule in crying. And I tried that too, though that didn't work so well for me. I remember solace. That was all well-intended. So much of it wasn't helpful. I remember someone yelling at me when I noted on Facebook the days and weeks and months that he had been gone. Don't you know you're just making it worse? And I remember the unwelcome moment when I realized that maybe eventually I would be some version of okay again. But honestly, I've forgotten so much because that's what grief does. She kicks in the door. She breaks down the furniture, she busts the place up, she beats you up until you cannot remember anything but that she was there. I have forgotten so much. But I do remember this. If we are lucky, we get to grieve like that because it means that we have loved like that. And if we are luckier still, we learn how to live around that vacancy, though it never goes away. It's been six and a half years now, and I have to tell you it hurts just to say that. I have new love in my life. My life has continued. I have learned how to live around that vacancy, and I am definitely some version of okay. It has softened. She still comes to visit. But now I remember my husband's smile as well as the pain that he was in and the pain of his loss. And even though the memory of those first years are gone, I remember Eileen sitting there with me. And I remember the pie. Our feature storyteller, Laura Packer. Thank you, Laura. Next up, Kurt and I tackle that question, when is the right time to tell a tough story? And when we're done, Laura will answer that same question. Let's dive in. 
Laura was a storyteller on a show that I have, a monthly show called Seven by Seven, and she was one of the storytellers. And this recording is directly from that because I thought it was so strong. And what I told Laura and others that night at the show was, and I still feel it, for me, it was very powerful because I felt like she got me a little bit closer to that space that she was in, which is, I think, the about the best you can do is to move your uh, listener a little bit closer to the sort of stuff that you were experiencing. It really resonates. That's why it really resonates for me. So she took an experience that, like it or not, we're all going to have to go through, or a lot of us have already been through, though there's nothing like Laura Packer losing her husband. She's six and a half years removed from that loss. And she's now ready to tell this story. I imagine that for a long time, she didn't feel ready. That sore was still weeping and then she didn't really have control of her material. She, when she puts the story together, there's so much that she can choose from. You know, that, that period of grief goes on and it's expansive. And as she says in the story, it's all encompassing. And so it, it traps you. It makes you feel stuck inside of something and it makes you feel completely self-absorbed. So she needs six and a half years later to sort of choose what details matter to me now in relating this experience. So she, she brings us close to her experience by being super specific about stuff that's really, really close to her heart. Um, I'm sure she had to eliminate a bunch of things. One thing that she says in the middle of all this is uh, there's so much that I forgot. Mm. It was one of those moments when I heard that line, because I've, I've had the chance to listen to this story maybe four or five times now. I first heard it at your show, and I was like, oh, there's something really different about this storyteller. I didn't know that as much about Laura Packer. There's still a lot to learn, I guess. I was like, wow, it really caught me. And when I was listening to this morning, and she says, there's so much that I've forgotten, it gave me a real relief because grief, um, as I've experienced, is so head swirling that you do forget a lot. Mm -hmm. And you care so much about the person that you lost, you kind of give you, you give, you don't kind of. You're like, why, why would I forget any of this? Mm -hmm. And I was grateful to her for telling that story and for including that line. And she could only include that line if she had control as she says in her book, control over her material. We wanted to talk about this idea of what they say in storytelling about, you know, when are you ready to tell a story that's real serious like this? Telling a story from either a scar or a wound. There's nothing wrong with crafting and telling a story to a couple friends about some experience that recently happened. I think we're talking about something maybe a little broader, more public perhaps. We've touched on this at some points in a couple of other episodes as to what happens typically for most people when they're writing from or telling from a wound, what it sounds like and why that doesn't work. Because it's a tricky one. It really is a tricky one because I don't think anybody's saying that those feelings are, don't matter or don't count or should not be communicated. We're really getting quite specific here about a certain thing that we and this podcast are all about, which is a personal narrative story, typically for public consumption, not always. When you're telling something that just happened or happened recently to a friends and family, because they know you and they know who you were before this, this thing happened. And so there's so much that they can just tell from 
the way you're carrying yourself, that you're just not right. So right. that is a whole backstory that doesn't need words put to it. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It's a totally different situation. But when you're trying to uh, create something for people who don't know you, it's really important to have some perspective in the problem with grief. Uh, you're so self-absorbed when you go through it. You're, you're too isolated to become, to be connecting to others. My brother died just before Hurricane Katrina. The newspaper arrived at my door every morning. And I, I was just like, I couldn't believe actually uh, caring about. Well, I remember seeing it about the sports page, but I was also like, oh, there's something really bad going on in New Orleans, but it was so on the periphery. It wasn't on the periphery for most people. It just goes to show me 15 years ago, I just wasn't in my right mind. I wasn't going to be telling good stories. The only thing I was going to be doing was talking about uh, something that was really impacting me. And as we know, you know, your intention needs to be different. Right. Whether it's grief or loss or some other things that people go through, the hard stuff, you don't get an email or if you're like our age of facts where, uh, hey, you're ready now. And it doesn't work that way. Oh, today's the day I'm absolutely sure I'm ready to craft this story and tell it. So someone's telling the story, hey, um, after 18 years of marriage, my husband walked out on me. We all know that there are very few people in the world who are 110% evil. But someone telling that story from a wound is there's that husband didn't do anything right. And as a listener, you're like, Okay, I'm getting a lopsided vision of of this marriage, and I don't know what the other side of this is, and I'm not going to really take this seriously. I mean, that's what happens with me. At one moth event in Boston one night in Cambridge, it was this guy got up, and he basically told us for six minutes how evil his ex-wife is, and she's making his life hell. And uh, I watched him go back to the table with his friends, and and their reaction was like just to take their drinks and put them up to their faces because what do you say to that person yeah um and i think it's important to make a clear distinction here if you want to get up on a stage and do that i I don't really have a judgment against it it's lopsided but hey you got to get it out but we're talking about right one of the, the overarching things with us is making stories or transforming stories that are more compelling and relatable and thereby memorable what that guy did doesn't doesn't pass that test. And it's not really even very close. I was thinking about late in the story when Laura, I was like, okay, some of the stuff she could have told in her raw state, we keep saying wound, but another way of saying it was like in that rawness of grief, those early, and it can last for a long time. And there's this one line towards the end, if we're lucky, we get mm-hmm. to grieve like this. That is not something someone in the raw state will be able to say. And so when she says that line to me, And I totally 110% agree. If we're lucky, we get to grieve like this because it means that we've loved like this. Yeah. Um, To me, that's like, okay, Log Packer's been through a journey and she's come back on her two feet. And this is the gold that she's brought back. She's brought back this perspective. And she knows now, if we're lucky, it's like this. You know, you said earlier, though, she's got to make all these choices, any storyteller crafter of story or teller has to do that. Any art, you're making all these choices, what to include, what to exclude, how to include them. You know, it means a lot about you, what you happen to notice. Mm -hmm. Inside of any story, there is an intention that was set. Mm -hmm. Some people on this earth choose to tell 
their difficult stories. Why do they do it? Well, part of it is they know they can create art out of it. And once that's done, people can connect to it. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's all about. And so when you've healed somewhat from an experience like this, that's when you're ready to connect. Laura Packer knows that uh, other people are going to go through this. It's not going to be exact. It's not going to look exactly like it did to Laura, but she knows that this is a very important part of being a human being. As a creative person, she's making the best contribution that she knows how to make. Mm. She's done a wonderful job. And I'm thankful that she had the skill set to do this and the heart. You were asking earlier, like, what is it about the the best storytellers? We can't put our finger on, like, what they're doing technically. It's not always consistent. They may share some some skills in in common. Mm -hmm. And when I teach this stuff, I wonder, too. For instance, the way Laura starts this story, she's talking about a movie, Love Actually, that I've never seen. I'll probably never see it. But there's something in, maybe it's in her voice. I'm not really sure. And I'm not going to pretend to know. Uh, exactly everything that Laura is doing. I just know that the, she must have set an intention to tell a story. I think that there must be, she's just so lined up that she could never tell a bad story because this is a person who's totally devoted her life to being completely authentic in her art. Mm-hmm. That's a hard thing to to teach a person. It's just a way, it's a modality. It's a way of being alive. You know what, When when you're so good at something, it means that you've had to give up something. I, if I had to guess, Laura's the type of person who a long time ago said, I'm going to be either be this way or I'm going to be nothing at all. Because mm. she sounds absolutely devoted to her art, to me. And I, I think there's just stuff that she's doing that's just kind of hard to put words to. Yeah. That you doesn't know. help when you're trying to teach, but you're right. <laughs> yeah. Right. There's yeah, just you know, when we say, well, we know it when we see it or we know it when we hear it or you get, you just get a feeling. And somebody wants to be like, no, no, but I want to do that better. I want to be better. I want to be more like that person. Or I want to tell stories like that. Hmm. It's more than just X's and O's. X's and O's matter. What are the good stories, the great stories have in common? And I do think there are probably some overlapping X's and O's, but there's something else. And I don't like this. I like the conversation, but if I'm hearing it, if I'm, I'm listening to the podcast, I'm like, great guys, great, great. So you just know it when you hear it. I don't mind it at all because it becomes bigger than storytelling. It's just uh, when you're talking to somebody about becoming uh, a better storyteller, you're taking examples from other art forms, even from the lives and the inspiration that fueled other artists. And it's just showing, all right, this is a kind of, this is a way of being. I never, ever, ever want to try to box someone out of thinking that they can create something because I really believe, especially in storytelling, that everybody can learn uh, how to tell a really good story and everybody can be a work in progress. I consider myself, I hope I always consider myself a work in progress. If I had to guess I would guess that someone like even Laura Packer, who's been at this for more than 25 years, has the humility in the face of this art to consider herself a work in progress. Because why else would you continue to do it but to think that there was more to do? This to me is where you draw a line between artist and non-artist. And it's snobby for me to say who isn't, and I'm not. Artists keep working because that's their fucking life, Kurt. Non-artists try to win moths only, and they don't do anything else. There's a different goal. And by the way, just to be really clear here, you can be a total artist and win moths. 
Intention matters. It shows. And you don't do it for 20 or 30 years without a certain kind of intention. Everybody can get better. The reason why some people will never be a great storyteller, and this is subjective, is because it's more than just X's and O's, and it's more than just a craft. The great storytellers aren't great only because they know how to craft a story. It's the way they're living their life, essentially. It's the lens in which they exist in the world. And if you don't have certain kinds of lenses, that your, your stories will never reflect that. I appreciate your perspective, but the penalty, the consequence of going there is like, I'm looking at my students last night and in this comes from Laura's book also, like, I know that just looking at them, like in the early stages, the stories really, really need to be uh, encouraged and supported. For and sure. We can't be the gatekeeper of, we want to draw, we want to, I get what you're, what you're saying. Like we want to be definitive and not wishy-washy too, so. In my experience, there comes a point where you, yes, you can continue to help people craft and the X's and the O's. You're right. When someone's new to this, there's a lot they can learn. You got to spend time on the hard part. You really do. What is the story really about? Why are you sharing it? Let us dive in more. And when that starts to come out and then you add the crafting stuff, that's when you get beauty. Yeah. If you're just focusing on the craft stuff, most people, there of course there are exceptions. It's like it's a good story. It's so funny. It's not a great story. Why? Well, do you have stakes and surprise? Yes. Do you have scenes? Yes. Transitions? Yep. Logical starting and stopping point. Yep. Got some dialogue. Yep. Good kind of detail, not the stuff. Yep. Got some wonder. Yep. All right. You checked all those boxes. It's good. <laughs> Why isn't it great? Well, one reason. Good and great are not my ideal word choice. I'll work on that. Because it's missing something. Well, what is it? It's missing more. It's missing that thing. And that isn't just the crafting. It's the digging. And it's the getting real. Here's the the unpopular opinion. Some people aren't going there, Kurt. They're just not. Dig, man. More. And there's a lot of people that just don't do that or don't want to. And so that's, that's how I feel. You're never going to be great at this. What do you say to someone like that? Um, go play racquetball. I don't know. You can go for a walk. Go paint. I just don't care about certain stories. Let me just say it. I don't care. We talked about one of the things that we don't want to talk about on this podcast is how to find stories. That, that doesn't include once you have an idea for a story or you're getting close to dive in and get to the real heart. That We're, we're all about that. But if you have no stories, you're not trying. You can't be alive and not have a ton of stories. There, there you go. There's your statement. But you yeah. need to be, aw- There's what is it? It's awareness and perspective. And yeah. All right. So I'll share with you one of my goals as a teacher or a quote unquote coach is to be even more honest, to be yeah. firm in stuff, like to stand. I, I already do it, but as I continue on and, and continue to get better at it, I'm, it's really the part where I could get better. It's just having a, a straight backbone, you know, having a, yeah. being strong and being like, that's not, that's not doing it. That's right. way too general. And you're, you're boring me with that. That's the sort of stuff where I feel like coaching or teaching is, is worth the money. Cause you know, your cousin Sally is not going to tell you that. The one right. you see three times a year, she's going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe you get on stage. You're so brave. Right, 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 right. I, I do want to share something that is important. I, I didn't ask Laura about this. I, I'd like to. 
the scar and the wound thing, for a large part of my life, I would have pushed back on that idea. I would have said something like, sure, it's a wound. And if you don't want to hear what I have to say about it, fuck you. That's probably where I would have my angle. Now, I still kind of feel that way sometimes. (laughs) But what I recognized is it doesn't change people's interest in the story. Like if my attitude is, well, if you don't want to listen, don't listen. That's not particularly inclusive. I'm not creating a space where like, you know, I got this thing I went through and um, you might want to hear it. I shared before that two years ago, I was in this psych unit at the UNC hospital when I crafted a story. The story was, went to the hospital, stuff happened. And I realized that one of the best mental health facilities in the state of North Carolina is awful. And I believe it still, that hasn't changed. But what got interesting, uh, especially when I got more involved and more involved last year, I wrote another story. More involved with? Well, uh, really hardcore storytelling stuff. In helping people and inviting people who have had um, mental health struggles, right? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, but specifically around mental health stuff, but storytelling in general, like understanding. I I knew this, but I guess there was something that crystallized, so to speak, is, oh, no, you had those experiences, but you could have 20 stories around that that you could write. It was like a good reminder. Like, yeah, the story about I went to the hospital, this stuff happened, and my takeaway was realizing how shitty the system was. That's a story. It's fine. Sure. Yeah. Some time goes by. I'm spending more time in storytelling circles. And I read another story. I don't remember the exact reason why. Maybe it was for a show that I was invited to speak. I don't remember. Similar events. Framed a little differently, right? Because when you're writing another story, even though there's similar events, because it's a different story, there's things that change. And the takeaway was there was this nurse. And everybody treated me shitty but not this nurse. And what a difference that made. And that's more from a scar for me. I can look back and not be pissed about the shitty system and how I went there to get help and was treated like shit and fuck this and fuck them. And I still have rather strong feelings about it. It's not that that's gone away, but I can then craft a story. And when you talk about getting clearer on things or understanding your material or if you're so, if you're so like in grief or you're so in anger, Listen, man, I live often in that space. I don't, I'm not judging you for it. It's a tricky spot to craft things in which people really want to hear it outside of your immediate loved ones. And by the way, I am not saying, oh, just rewrite your life and everything's great. I'm not saying that. Please know that. What I am saying is with a little time and with a little healing, you can write additional stories with additional perspectives or takeaways, or changes, or realizations. The reason why I know I wouldn't have been able to write that right after is because I didn't write that right after. The story I wrote right after was the story that I needed to write. But nobody really wanted to hear that. It was eh, like, whatever, dude, you're pissed. It's cool. Go through that. Would Would you tell it today, or did you put it away? I never really got to the point with that story where I wanted to. It wasn't something I shared publicly. I shared it with people I know. It wasn't some big thing. Sure. But that was the story, even like casually speaking, even loosely defining story, more like, hey, this thing happened. And anytime anyone asked me about it, the, the last line was always, place is fucking bullshit. It's a joke. What mm-hmm. a shame. Uh, I, I still feel that way. 
But it's just another story I added to it. A year goes by or whatever it was, a year and a half. Oh, there was that nurse, man. I just have other stories I can now add to that experience because I have some time and I'm healed a little bit from it. Uh, If I just get up on stage, like at a Cambridge, Massachusetts moth and start coming from pure red hot anger, I don't know. Doesn't work. I think a lot of people just stop listening right away. I think you're right. I mean, there's probably a small percentage of people that might even be more, oh my God, we have to kind of speak in generalities, right? What most people would do most of the time. We've been on earth long enough and on stages or wherever long enough to get a good sense of it because that's part of what we do. It's to understand that. And yeah, you're right. You're just right. I mean, believe me though, I, I wish it were, sometimes I wish it were different. This is our fourth episode. We've had four storytellers. You were one, Laura today and Julie and Andrew. I don't think any of them could have written the story they shared with us right away. They needed some, for starters, time. You just do something, time and some other stuff to sort of sort it out, have a little uh, control over it. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. So that it's something, again, getting back to something you're crafting that most people give a shit about, most people want to listen to and will stay engaged with for 10 minutes. And hopefully even like relate to in some way, which is tricky with some of this stuff where like, Funny. how do I make something relatable about you've never been to a psych unit. My job is to make it relatable in some way. You know what I just started doing? And maybe this will help people. So journaling can be tedious, really tedious, especially when you get into, oh, I'm going to do it every day. Then you get in this, oh, I forgot this part in this whole chronology and it, t- it becomes homework. Yeah. All right. But what I've started to do lately is there are these friends that I don't get to like, they're at work uh, or coming back from work and there's a bad cell. We don't get to have, it's not the nineties. We don't catch up on the phone. So sometimes once in a while, when something big in my life happens, I'll make like a recording and just email it to them. Mm. Here, enjoy this or, or whatever verb you want to use. But they exist also on my phone. If I want to go back to what happened to me last weekend when I was standing in front of a toilet and for some reason my heart fluttered and I, and I fainted and broke a rib, then I made this message on my phone to my friend Joe and it's there and so are the, the intimate details of that, of that situation. I'm just trying to give another idea to the storytelling community about how you might put down some of, your, some of these moments. Just to be super clear, we agree, and but we don't have to agree. In fact, some people want to see us disagree. Some, that's some of the feedback I've gotten. You yeah. know, we're too agreeable. We're too kind. I don't know what we're going to have. What do you want? Do. What do they want me to just, should I say, should I curse at you? Is that what they're looking for? I think they want you to be Morton Downey Jr. And I'm supposed to be like Tim Conway or something. We need tension in stories. Maybe that's a reason why you need tension here. It's the same idea in some ways, but we agree. So sorry, y'all. We both agree that it is generally, what's the word? Fill in the word. Smarter, more logical, more effective, more whatever to craft and tell a story from a scar or perhaps a wound that has really begun to heal. You got a vent, you got a rant. Here's what I think will happen when you get it out. Maybe, no guarantees, we'll get a little closer to that story. But if you don't do that, it's hard to find that. You don't just magically usually find it. I just had this thought. I might say, hey, Marsha, just make sure you're recording this because there might be something in here that you could use down the road. Perfect, absolutely. 
Yeah. Wow. That that really sort of encapsulates what we've been trying. We you you try to capture that white hot moment. You do, yeah. and if you skip over it, it's really hard to capture. Sometimes that process of capturing is messy and ugly and loud. I would love to see more storytelling communities and more storytelling groups, and I'm sure they're out there. I don't obviously know everything. Oh man, embrace that. Embrace what? Somebody's going through something. <laughs> it would be very easy for me in that scenario, that role, that thing you just said for me to say, Marsha, that's a wound. So let's revisit that when you've got some time. So or, not only is Marsha in a bad way, but she's being condescended to. And you could make a valid argument. Well, this isn't the right space for that, Marsha. You signed up for a story class, not therapy, not to yell in rage. So get your shit together and we'll talk about something else. I, I could understand that train of thought. It's just not really how I am. But you believe in people. You believe that somewhere inside the six-minute rant, there's going to be something Marsha could use six months from now when she's able to better put it all together. Yeah, for Keep sure. coming back, Marsha. Keep coming back. For sure. You want great stories? They take time. Marsha Marcia works with her stuff, gets it out, and then she uses some of the things, the tools, the X's and the O's, and she puts those together. Mm-hmm. That's when you have a really good story. There you go. So now we're back at the at the scar. So we've gone from wound to scar in your workshop. See, let's do. That's a good name for a workshop. <laughs> and I'd love story to have more of that. I'd love yeah. communities and groups to have more of that. To have better listeners. Yeah, and to and to encourage it. No one should be discouraged from doing this at all. No one should be told you need to go talk to your therapist. People should be listened to, heard out. Absolutely, and once again. Kurt and I agree. I used to really struggle with how do I know when I'm ready to tell an emotionally challenging story? I used to feel as if As soon as the events had transpired, or as soon as I'd gotten just a little ways away from them, I could start talking about it. But I don't always think that's the case now. In fact, I often think that's not the case now. I know I'm ready to tell an emotionally tough story when I know what the story is. And that's more than just the experience. I can talk about a thing that happened But that's not necessarily a story. That's just a sequence of events. I know it's a story when I have a place to start, when I have a place to end, and when I have some kind of sense of what I want the audience to get out of it. Now, that doesn't mean that I won't still have strong feelings while telling the story, but it's important to me that the audience knows that I'm okay, that they don't feel like they have to take care of me while I'm telling it. So that's the other bar that I have to be able to get over. I need to be able to get through the story without losing it or without getting so distressed that the audience feels like they may need to step in. So I think that's it. It needs to be a story and not just a thing that happened that I'm talking about. And I need to be able to tell it and leave enough room for the audience. I need to not take all the air out of the room. That's how I know when I'm ready. So it requires practice and thought and sometimes making mistakes, but each time I learn something. And I know that these stories are worth that risk.